Myself, Mukundar Raghavan, Krishna Parthasarthi as co-host, and we are very excited today. This has been a long time in the works to have uh, an amazing, not only scholar, economist, polymath, polyglot, um, just all around uh, man of all seasons, uh, joining us on our podcast today, Dr. Bibek Dubroy, who is currently working at the Economic Advisory Council f- uh, for the Prime Minister's office in India, and he is also known spectacularly for amazing translations of the Vedas, Puranas, Mahabharata, and Ramayana. I think he's working on that also. And he has released, a, one of my favorite books actually is one of his older books called uh, Sarma and Her Children, which I thought was a fantastic book. So uh, Dr. Dubroy, welcome to the program. So pranams to you and thank you so much for joining us. Um, you know, we are truly blessed um, how are you today? Thank you, and thank you for hosting me. Of course, of course, we're we're blessed. I mean, the, the fact that you took the time out to come talk to us is is frankly mind mind boggling. Um, <laughs> so, so you're such a busy man. Um, you know, I, 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 this is so magnanimous of you. Um, I want to ask how how did you get into? I mean, what's your background? How did you get into translation? How did you get into your desire for economics too. I mean, both those are kind of, in, in your work, you've kind of indicated they're co-related at some level. Mm, let's ignore the economics for a minute. <laughs> uh, um, I never actually wanted to study economics. I wanted to study philosophy. Mm. Uh, whereupon my father threw a fit. <laughs> you might as well study something useful. So economics was his choice. Not that I protested too much, um, but it was something he had wanted to do. And as happens with many parents, you your um, unmet wishes are dumped on your children. So that's how I got into economics. Um, now, so far as the translations are concerned, there are different levels at which I can answer. The first level that I can answer is if you look at the translations I've been doing, there have been some translations that I did in the 1990s, first half of the 1990s. I will explain this in a minute. And there's some translations that I've been doing since 2004 5. So let me take these in two different parts. In um, the 90s, before I did those translations in the 90s, in the 80s, early 80s, I used to work in Presidency College, Kolkata. 
And I used to know a professor of economics. He was really a professor of statistics, but he came to be known as a professor of economics, and his name was Ashok Rudra. Was because he is dead now. He was a left-wing Marxist scholar, <laughs> and he used to teach in Vishwabharati Shantiniketan, which at that time used to be about four hours drive or by train from Kolkata. And I occasionally used to go and meet him. and he was contemptuous of my variety of economics and showed it i was contemptuous of his variety of economics but dare not show it by tacit consent we decided to talk on things other than economics and he used to write popular stuff on the ramayana and the mahabharata and he had a translation of the mahabharata all of these things are in sanskrit but the script sometimes differs and he had a bengali version arya shastra edition with the sanskrit in the bengali script and a bengali translation so once when i had gone to visit him i casually asked him the mahabharata says that the five pandavas became accomplished in the use of five different kinds of weapons arjuna in all weapons bhima in the use of the gada yudhishthir contrary to impressions about yudhishthira in the bow and arrow and so on and so forth so what happens if one does a statistical test to see whether there is a significant difference in the frequency with which these people use these weapons <laughs> who's people would have said what a crazy idea get lost <laughs> ashok rudra being a statistician said ha here's my mahabharat you take whichever volume you want the most fierce fighting in the kurukshetra battle happened when dronacharya was the general the drona parva mm-hmm. it was fighting as its at its fiercest i'm not talking about using divyastras like bhishma did and slaughtering 10000 soldiers a day not that but hand to hand fight so i picked out dronacharya and drona parva and remember this was early 80s mm. so statistics and computers they were not what they are there were no computers so i sat down did those tally marks etc wow <laughs> a paper emerged in bengali as a result of this more or less at the same time by chance i encountered two shlokas i will translate the shlokas don't worry i have had no formal training in sanskrit none whatsoever hmm wow i didn't study sanskrit in school so these two chant shlokas are one shloka is from the valmiki ramayan where rama knows that sita is in lanka but it is the monsoon so he has to wait before he can actually invade and valmiki was superb at describing nature so there uh-huh. is a which goes 
विद्युत्पताकाशलाकमालाशैलेन्द्रकूटाकृति सन्निकाशा गर्जन्ति मेघा समुद्रीन नादा मत्ता गजेन्द्र इवसंयुगस्थ विद्युत्पताका this is the description of the clouds the clouds have flags of lightning savalakamala they are garlanded by flocks of cranes vidyut pataka savalakamala shailendra kuta kriti sannikasha the clouds resemble the tops of mountains garyanti megha the clouds are thundering and what do the clouds look like matta gajendra eva sanyugas these are gigantic elephants which are fighting this is one uh-huh we have not been able to date anything satisfactorily but several years after valmiki there was kalidasa again a superb poet in terms of describing nature and kalidasa has a piece called meghadutam translated into english as the cloud messenger there is no substantive story in the meghadutam a yaksha has been derelict in the functioning of his duties <laughs> he been cursed by his lord and master kuvera kuvera's capital is alakapuri and the yaksha has been banished for one year in exile and while he is there in exile it is the monsoon he looks at the clouds he begins to pine for his beloved who is there in alakapuri and he sees a cloud so he sends the cloud as a messenger to his beloved in alakapuri so the cloud goes that's the first part the cloud returns that's the second part that's all essentially other than that descriptions of nature towards the beginning of megdutam says asarasya prathama devase meghamashlishta sanum vapra kreela parinata gaja prekshaniyam dadarsha the first day in the month of asar meghamashlishta sanum the mountains are covered by clouds vapra kreela parinata gaja prekshaniyam dadarsha so he saw the clouds and what are the clouds like they are like elephants and what are the elephants doing vapra kriya that is playing uh-huh. the elephants do when they use their tusks to dig up the ground in, on near river banks and i thought oh my god here are two poets both describing clouds during the monsoon season both compare them to elephants the yaksha is pining for his beloved and what are the elephants doing the elephants are playing and rama is impatient to fight and what are the elephants doing the elephants are fighting and i thought if i don't read this i've lost out on something wow <laughs> wow i moved to the gokhale institute in pune uh pune the gokhale institute of politics and economics i moved in as an associate professor there 87 no 83 83 and right next to that walking distance is the bhandarkar oriental research institute we talk about the mahabharata but the mahabharata it had many different versions floating around in india differing minor points in this shloka that shloka minor differences did Veda Vyasa dictate to Ganesha? Did he not dictate <laughs> Ganesha? This kind of thing, minor variations. 
the bhandarkar oriental research institute sifted together sifted through about 1215 different such texts and came up with what is known as the critical edition of the mahabharata it took them 50 years from 1916 to 1966 and this was known as the critical edition the critical edition was a gigantic task it has its critics on grounds of omission of shlokas because they excise some shlokas mm-hmm. but it was a fantastic the bhandarkar oriental research institute had a journal called prestigious journal it still does called annals of the bhandarkar oriental research institute so i go there once i go there i go i i had translated by then i had written several essays in bengali including the one i had mentioned essays mm-hmm. meaning long essays published in bengali i had translated one of them the one with the tally marks and lona parva <laughs> weapons of the kurukshetra war i translated it into english and went and met the editor whose name was gb palsule gb palsule to his eternal credit looked me up and down and said what do you do i <laughs> said i'm an associate professor at the goklin of economics at the goklin institute of politics and economics to his eternal credit he said i shall get the paper refereed the referee submitted his comments said nice things about the paper said yes yes we should publish it he didn't exactly use the word idiot but he said has this, <laughs> has this idiot not heard of the critical edition of the mahabharata if you are going to publish it it has to be based on the critical edition so there we go again tally marks etc etc to cut a long story short that paper was published and while i was in pune five or six different papers were published in annals of the bhandarkar oriental research institute on all kinds of different things i moved to delhi i hope you are not getting bored no 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 no, no, no. i moved to delhi I become a professor at the Indian Institute of Foreign Trade. By then, at that time, Mahabharata was a rage. A TV show, Mahabharata yeah. was a rage. Yeah, yeah. Mahabharata. <laughs> And I thought this is the opportune time. Why don't I publish all of these essays in the form of a book? Huh. So in '89. all of these essays there were 12 of them they were published in a book by a publisher known as commonwealth publishers it was called some essays on the ramayana and the mahabharata don't try to get it it's out of print the publisher has gone bankrupt not because of this book the book received rave reviews but it didn't sell so that was that in passing this book was jointly dedicated to gb palsule and ashok rudra G.B. Palsule had by then become the director of the Bhandarkar Oriental Research Institute. So I went to give these respective venerable gentlemen their copies. G.B. Palsule said, "Thank you very much. No one has dedicated a book to me, but who on earth is Ashok Rudra?" And Ashok Rudra said, "Thank you very much. No one has dedicated a book to me, but who on earth is G.B. Palsule?" What happened? 
after mm. having read the ramayana and the mahabharata in a little bit of detail i decided to read the puranas so i started to read the puranas and i began to tell those stories to our sons who were growing up mm. and they seemed to enjoy it i had a publisher at that time who used to publish my books on economics his name was pravin mittal dk publishers a local indian publisher i mentioned it to him he said why don't you since you are saying your sons enjoy them why don't you do the stories of the puranas in abridged form and i want each of them to be reduced to about 100 printed pages so that's how i ended up doing the 19 puranas 19 because i also did the bhavishya puran there's a list of 18 sometimes 18, the bhavishya yeah. puran is not included i included that also so the 19 i did that then he wanted to do the 11 major upanishad same format abridged 100 pages did that did the four vedas I said there were two phases in this translation. These translations were bad. I'm not proud of them. I did not know Sanskrit sufficiently well. But for whatever reason, they sold like mad. <laughs> I they actually, still, yeah, still, I, actually, those were your Puranas. Were one of the ones I got when I used to go to India. I got all your little Puranas. They, they still sell. Yeah. I go to a book fair held in Delhi where I meet Praveen Mittal. So Praveen Mittal tells me Devraj Sab your Puranas you are doing very well your Vedas are doing very well. Uh they are on reading list in various places. I now want to want you to do an unabridged translation of the Rigveda. the earlier ones were abridged i want you to do an unabridged translation of the rigveda with the sanskrit on one side with the english on the other i was not interested to fend him off i said okay i shall go back and read the rigveda again when i started to read the rigveda i discovered in the rigveda dogs are used as beasts of burden when you are reading something with a view to translate in unabridged form you read every word carefully i read it earlier also but it had not registered so suddenly in the rigveda i find dogs being used as beasts of burden the vedas are essentially mantras to different divinities mm-hmm. in the yajurveda i find something a mantra addressed to a dog i said oh my god this had not registered and soon i was hunting for information on dogs in everything <laughs> so we know that bharat had gone to visit his maternal uncle in kekai when news was conveyed to him that dasharath had died mm-hmm. and, and they didn't tell him that dasharath had died they just told him come back to ayodhya kekai was famous for horses so as gifts horses were brought back blankets were brought back kekai was famous for those also but in addition 
the presents included dogs which had been bred inside the palace wow when sita throws down her earrings as she is being abducted by jatayu there's a description of her earrings and the earrings are in the shape of a dog's tooth so on and so forth ramayana mahabharat puranas everything jataka stories i had this manuscript sarama is the mother of all dogs or the dog of the gods which indra is indra's dog right which is why dogs everything in sanskrit has multiple names but one of the words for dog is saramaya that is because they are descendants of sarama so i had this manuscript entirely on dogs called sarama and her children which was refused by 14 publishers i then went to penguin Uh, penguin said we love this manuscript but wait a minute we have always wanted to get a translation done of the bhagavad gita will you do that so it was not quite a quid pro quo sounded a little bit like that so i said i've always wanted to translate the bhagavad gita and my sanskrit had improved enormously by then so that's how i did the bhagavad gita translation and i did the sarama book uh, so both were published almost back to back around 2005 2006 by that time i was contemplating translating the mahabharata contemplating because it was huge my translation in 10 volumes runs into 2.25 million words it was huge it stretched into infinity and the track record of people who have attempted translations of the mahabharata is not very good three of them died in between <laughs> so my wife keeps telling me that while you are doing the mahabharata translation i was really really scared <laughs> <laughs> that's how the mahabharata translation got done mm. when we meet krishna in the mahabharat he is already an adult uh-huh. so a question is asked about his childhood exploits they are there in the puranas also but they are also in another text called the harivansha which is regarded as a sequel to the mahabharat which is also part of bhandarkar oriental research institute's critical edition so after that i did the harivansha thereafter since i have done the mahabharat it was but almost inevitable that i should do the valmiki ramayana so i did the valmiki ramayana in three volumes after that i started on something that is even more gigantic it's the purana project which is the translation of the 18 mahapuranas in unabridged form the mahabharata has a 100000 shlokas believed to have the critical edition has less collectively the 18 puranas amount to 400000 shlokas so if the mahabharata was 2.5 million words the 18 mahapuranas together will amount to 12 million words uh oh <laughs> good luck <laughs> out of that 
the bhagavat puran in three volumes and the markandeya puran in one volume they have already been published covid disrupted matters but brahma puran in two volumes and vishnu puran in one volume are with penguin they should be published this year this calendar year i have started work on the shiva puran now which is a fairly long puran so that's it spoken enough for the moment wow i mean i'm not sure if you're working hard enough professor <laughs> <laughs> i mean it, it, obviously one of the questions is how do you find that time with your full time job to to get, to work on these translations mm. um okay depends a little bit on whether i'm traveling or i'm not traveling if i'm obviously when i have a manuscript to be delivered there is a mm. deadline there is a deadline that i and penguin all my translations are published by penguin there is a deadline penguin and i have set if i am approaching the deadline and i am traveling sometimes i carry this stuff on a mm. flight in a hotel but it's not terribly convenient um otherwise if i am in delhi and there are no particular meetings what i have actually eliminated is appearing for tv interviews <laughs> completely eliminated except the rare occasion appearing for tv interviews so typically my time for doing this other than weekends is something like let us unless there are meetings is something like about 6:30 to 8 so any dinner invitation after that um 6:30 to 8 typically so 6:30 to 8 phone is silent I don't have the mobile with me. That kind of stuff. Wow, wow. Um, I so mean, essentially, one way of answering that is essentially about fifteen hundred words a day. Well, well, that's doable, right? I mean, but that's uh, a, a quite a. I mean, your Sanskrit, uh, your Sanskrit has to be pretty good at this point then to be able to go through that fifteen hundred words a day. Um. Oh, okay. It's like this: that the way one does the translation. is and some of these texts have not been translated in the past ever mm. for instance there are only two people i'm talking about translations in english right. there are only two people who have translated the mahabharat and the valmiki ramayan both yeah that one is manmathanath datta and the other one is i and some of the puranas i'm not talking about the bhagavat puran which is a popular one some of the others have not been translated ever into english and even in some regional languages non english languages you don't really have an average translation but to answer your question essentially what happens is this is the way i do the translation i look at the shloka i translate it consulting dictionaries whatever whatever and then i look at the preceding translators mm. and what i've done to see if i've missed something uh-huh. your translation does not take that much time but what mm. i'm trying to do in the course of the translation is to make things absolutely clear to the reader is professor it professor Now, Broid, that, yeah i'm sorry to interrupt you but what you said right now is such a beautiful thing because the pro, i'm trying to um connect what your your process of translation with even the musician's process this is just coming from my life we do the same thing with the raga if i'm going to sing you know rag yaman I'm going to interpret the raga myself but then we'll also go consult all the great masters what did they do with yaman what did they say before us so it's like we're verifying is our understanding correct 
And I just, it's a beautiful process that you're, you're verifying your understanding. You know, you're not just doing it blind. That's beautiful. So, to end what I was saying, quite often, a lot of time is spent on chasing a reference. Uh-huh. This geographical place, where is it? Can I identify it? This word, what does it actually mean? So, a lot of time goes into what are the footnotes. Mm-hmm. Um, when one looks at a translation, one just thinks, ah, it's a translation. Mm-hmm. But probably just as much of time actually goes into the footnotes. When it becomes a footnote, it's just a one sentence. Mm-hmm. But a lot of time is spent on that. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Even when I was looking through your Sarama, reading through your Sarama book, um, it's very, there's a lot of footnotes connected to the various different Brahmanas or or sections of the Vedas, or the translators of even if you look at Basham versus Griffith and how they uh, view these 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 stories, you bring a lot of that uh, erudition to the table. I think uh, in your footnotes there, and it plays out in, in the way you tell the story. So you're actually also one of the the three. I mean, out of the, the there's like I think five people uh, translate the Mahabharata. Three of them are Bengalis. Is there a reason no, no, no. for that? <laughs> no, 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 no. Unabridged Mahabharata, unabridged Mahabharata yeah. has been translated into English by only three people. Um, and yes, all three are Bengalis. Pilar <laughs> uh, did a transcreation. It's not huh. really a translation. Chicago Professor Van Buitenen, it uh, because he died. Yeah. It was it was left dangling halfway. It has not been completed. The clay edition has also not been completed. So That's technically, right. there are just three translations. And Pilal, although he was a Punjabi, for many practical purposes, he was a Bengali. So you could stretch the point a bit and say all four are Bengalis in some fashion. Is there? Do you think there's a reason why Bengali? culture is drawn to translate these texts more so than other cultures within India have have not taken the opportunity to do that? I don't really know the answer to that. Maybe one particular reason is, I'm completely speculating and I may be completely wrong. There was a tradition in 19th century Bengal, during the Bengal, so-called Bengal Renaissance, of people being interested in all kinds of different things. So when these translations have been done or are being done, they're not necessarily being done by Sanskrit pundits. Mm. Um, if I if I take the three Bengali translations that are the four, suppose I include Pilal also. Yeah. Kishori Mohan Ganguly was a Sanskrit pundit. Mm-hmm. Manmathanardatta was anything but that. I certainly am not. Pilal was a professor of English literature. So in some sense, because, because of the way, because of Bengal's history and legacy, the Brahminical preserve was probably somewhat broken down. So others had access. Mm. I don't know if that's some kind of imperfect answer. I mean, it's a very interesting answer. So, I mean, maybe someone can explore it some other time, but I think that's a, it's a good starting point. You see, the first one who translated it into Bengali in unabridged form in the middle of the 19th century was someone named Kali Prashanna Singha. He, he, he was not a Brahmin either. Yeah. 
Wow. So when you started your Mahabharata translation, um, was there a, did you have a preconception going into it that maybe changed after you, you did the process? I know what you're asking, but let me say something else. The sure, sure. The first part was the first one, and I'll explain why. Let's not get into arguments about whether they were composed by Veda Vyasa or not, but the belief sure. is they were all composed by Veda Vyasa. Mm -hmm. And other than the Valmiki Rama and everything that I'm translating is Veda Vyasa. Mm -hmm. So you get familiar with an author's style. And it makes it a little bit easier. So if you see a certain word in a certain sentence placed in a certain way, you automatically, because you're familiar with the author's style, it becomes easier. Mm. So that's why the first one was the toughest. And as I've gone along, it's become easier and easier in that particular sense. What, what, what was uh, the first work you, you translated, Professor Dvori? What was the first one? The first one was really the serious translation. The first one was the Bhagavad Gita. But the okay, Bhagavad Gita is slightly, slightly different in a way. Ah. Uh, but let me say something before I react, answer your question. You mentioned music. Uh, the, the point I want to make is that I think all of these texts should now be not only translated, read in the Sanskrit, and be explored by people who come from multiple disciplines. Mm. Now, let me give an example of that. In the Markandeya Puran, there is a reference to a demoness. Her name is Jata Harini. Jata Harini, as the name implies, is a demoness who steals a newborn baby, steals an infant. So she steals an infant from house number one goes to house number two where another baby has been born, takes this baby, puts that baby there, <laughs> takes that baby away, puts that baby somewhere else and causes <laughs> confusion. <laughs> In the process, she devours every third infant. Any Sanskrit Pandit who translates it would just translate it like that. But anyone who has a multidisciplinary sense will say, wait a minute, this is telling me that the infant mortality rate then was one third. <laughs> 50, 33 by 1000. Mm. So mm. let me explore it with that context. Lens. Yeah, yeah. It's not literal. Let us, or let us take people who are into music and poetry. How many times have we read the Bhagavad Gita? So many times. Sanskrit chanda, Sanskrit meter had a very particular characteristic. It was not about rhyming. Mm -hmm. All aksharas, syllables were divided into short and long. And depending on how many syllables there were in a line and the combination of the short and the long, you had different meters and altogether there were more than there were about 1300 different meters. One of the most common of these was Anushtup. Anushtup Chanda. Yes, yes. Anushtup Chanda. And, and the bulk of Itihas and Purana is in Anushtup Chanda. 
I'm not going to get into messy details of the combination of short and long, mm. but ignoring that at a even primary level, Anushtuk Chanda has four lines in a shloka, eight aksharas per line. Dharma Shetre Kuru Shetre Samaveta Yutsava Eight. Many of the mantras we recite. Vakratunda Mahakaya Eight. Surya Koti Samaprabha Ya Devi Sarva Bhuteshu Saraswati Mahabhage. And I think the musical tradition has only been preserved of this kind, has only been preserved in the South. But, but this is a tradition of the music and the poetry and the chanda that can be used to disseminate Itihas Purana, to teach Itihas Purana, to explore Itihas Purana. Hmm. Can you say more about that? Can you say more about that? Why the distinction between South and North? Why is it only preserved in the South? Can you say more I, about that? I, I have no. I have no idea. I don't know. Meaning, why is it? But but what what observations have you made to, to come to those conclusions? Take 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 take, take something like Aigiri Nandini Nandita Medini. Where do I get a beautiful singing on this? Mm. Coming from the south. Mm. Stotram. Where do I get a beautiful rendering of this? You know. Dr. Dubrow, it's so refreshing to hear you because most North Indian people I meet, they hate Carnatic music. <laughs> and so I'm hearing a, a, someone from Bengali, Delhi, you know, proper Indian person who appreciates Carnatic music. It makes me so happy. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Shuddha Brahma Parat Pararam. This is not, uh, uh, this is nine actually. But but the point is, it's popularized by a Carnatic singer. <laughs> yeah. Oh. So I, I don't know the answer because I, I'm, not, I'm not a historian. But coming back to your question, the question that you asked is obviously changes you. Yeah. Uh, how it changes you, I'm probably not the right person to ask because you are the object. Hmm. The person who perceives how you have changed is someone outside. But it's palpably obvious that it changes you. No, I guess I guess my question was more to the fact that so when you started doing the translations and really getting deep dive into the subject matter and the text, you probably came in with a, a, a something preconceived notion about what was in the text or what the text was saying or what it meant. Did you afterwards come out with a different opinion about what you thought previously? Mm, you see, to a certain extent, I was already familiar with the texts. Uh -huh. To a certain extent, because remember, I said I had done the uh, abrasion oscillations earlier. 
But so far as preconceived notions are concerned, the preconceived notion, particularly about the Puranas, is that these are about stories. Huh. They are not. The stories would account for perhaps one third. They cover everything under the sun. They cover what we would call governance, mm. Raja Dharma. They cover a householder's duties. They cover geography. The Matsya Purana talks about how temples should be constructed. The Agni Purana describes the form of the image of a god or goddess. The Sraddha ceremonies are described in the Garur Purana. So they describe our day-to-day -day life. They're encyclopedias. Mm. So I guess I would say that I was not fully appreciative of the extent to which they were encyclopedias. Right, right. Because when I had done the abridged translations, I also picked on the stories because the stories are the more interesting from a mm. certain lens. Using a certain lens is the stories which are the more interesting. Yeah, right. Entertain, entertainment. <laughs> yes, yes. So, so, so when you're, so why do you think in the Indian? I mean, this is India's heritage. This is India's lifeblood. You know, since since the dawn of time. Why is there a lack of in some sense within, because I've lived in India for various years throughout my life, uh, you know, both professional and college time. There seems to be a lack of like basic knowledge of these texts or the the traditions outside of watching Mahabharata, you know, and Durdashin. Um, it just, I, I find there's a lack of these, the, this corner in India. Why do you think that is? Um, okay, let me draw a distinction between the Ramayana and the Mahabharata and the Purana. Mm, mm, the Ramayana and the Mahabharata there is some degree of familiarity. However imperfect, there is some degree of familiarity about the Ramayana and the Mahabharata. Yeah. Of course, they're based on very superficial telling. So everything is portrayed in black and white. There are the heroes mm -hmm. and the <laughs> like the uh, like standard Bollywood. Yeah, Lord, of the, Lord of the Rings, the orcs <laughs> versus the harvest. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Mahabharata and the Ramayana, they're much more complicated than that. I will tell you a story and linking it with dogs in a minute from the yeah. Ramayana. You can talk about dogs all you want. We'll be happy to hear. We're dog lovers. <laughs> okay. so I'll tell you the story about dogs in a minute. So far <laughs> as the Puranas are concerned, I think the issue is Hinduism has several texts. But Hinduism or understanding of Hinduism has been equated with Moksha Dharma. Yeah. The dharma of emancipation. So, whenever one is talking about texts on Hinduism, it will be Vedanta, it will be Upanishads, mm -hmm. and by extrapolation, it will also be the Bhagavad Gita. Mm. But these texts were composed by who? These texts were composed by people who are in Vanaprastha and Sannyas. <laughs> bulk of the population then as is the case now they were not interested in sannyas they were householders they were grihasthas yeah. they did what we did today they earned wealth hopefully by legitimate means <laughs> and they were interested in dharma, artha and karma 
so where are these descriptions these descriptions are not in the upanishads and the aranyaks and the brahmanas these descriptions are in itihas and purana aha uh-huh. so the because, masses for the yes, masses everybody for the mass but because of the equation of hinduism with otherworldliness and moksha uh-huh. i think these have not been translated for example if you look at the translations that were edited and commissioned by max muller in the 19th century sacred books of the east mm-hmm. you will find the upanishads you will find the dharma shastras will you find itihas purana no mm. that is the reason now of the story about the dog let me tell you the story about the dog This is from the Uttar Kanda of the Valmiki Ramayana, which is regarded as a subsequent interpolation. Although I think actually it was much more complicated than that. Yeah. Uh, this story is not part of the critical edition. Also, Rama had defeated Ravana. Rama was back in Ayodhya. All was well with the world. There was Rama Rajya. No complaints. No drought. No famine. people did not die before their time no unexpected disease no covid nothing <laughs> however lakshmana was given a task every morning you shall go at 9 o'clock in the morning it didn't say 9 it said morning <laughs> you shall go outside the palace to the courtyard where there is a bell where anyone who has a complaint can come and ring the bell and the complainant will be brought before the king there was a dog which was sleeping on the road a brahmana was passing and the dog was obstructing the brahmana's path so the brahmana took his stick and beat the dog on the head and when beaten on the head the dog moved away so the dog came to complain to rama <laughs> lakshmana came out he found the dog was there the dog said i have a complaint you have to take me to the king lakshmana said no look dogs cannot go before the king dog said who says rama says everyone with a complaint can go before the king i have a complaint take me before the king so the dog is taken before the king Rama says, "What's your problem?" The dog says, "Look, I was sleeping. All the Brahmana, I acknowledge that I was obstructing the Brahmana's path. All the Brahmana had to do was to ask me to move away, and I would have moved away. Instead, without asking me to move away, he beat me on the head, and that's a crime. So the Brahmana is summoned. Brahmana is asked. Brahmana says, 'Yes, it is true. Yes, it is true. I should have asked him to move. Yes, it is true.'" that i did not i beat him on the head so that's an unguilty so rama looks at all the ministers and the advisers and says tell me what should i do all of them say you cannot punish a brahmana how can you punish a brahmana no king can punish a brahmana and the dog says no he is guilty you must punish him otherwise you are not a king So Rama looks at the dog and says, "Dog, you tell me what should I do?" <laughs> There is a fort; it still exists, called Kalinger, border of MP and UP, 
technically it's in up but is border the dog says make him the kuladipati the lord of kalinger kalinger rama says okay make the brahmana the lord of kalinger so the brahmana has put an elephant given servants maids given a lot of jewels well servants soldiers and he goes off to kalinger and all the ministers and the advisor look at the king and say what is this you are supposed to punish him but you have rewarded him he has become the lord of kalinger so rama looks at the dog and says this dog is wiser than all of you dog will you tell them the story the dog says in my last life i was the lord of kalinger if you are the lord of kalinger there is a lot of scope for bribery and rent seeking because i indulged in bribery and rent seeking in this life i have been born as a dog so the brahmana ostensibly may have been rewarded but he is actually been punished <laughs> to come to what i was saying for example take the bhagavad gita huh. bhagavad gita it says bhagavat gita bhagavat is an adjective yeah gita is anything that is recited or sung when i see what i am about to say many people are astounded that all together there are around 60 different gitas mm-hmm. bhagavad gita is only one anugita devita itself there are 20 gitas depending on how you define and count the gita i have done a translation of it's called mahabharata gitas it is the non bhagavad gita gitas mahabharata Mm. that will be published early in 2022 but anyway to come back to this point well, professor the boy started started to interrupt you but I, my understanding of that was the britishers when they came to india they were looking for some central text like the bible so they settled on the bhagavad gita as like the hindu bible like this is what they decided and is something like that and is that correct I, I agree you see the bhagavad gita was one of the first texts to be translated with a forward of all things by forward of preface whichever it was by warren hastings mm-hmm. but there is no particular reason why today we should not be familiar with the fact that there are other gitas also in the mahabharat mm-hmm. that all of the gitas are not about moksha dharma one of the most famous gitas in the mahabharata is the dharma vyad gita the dharma vyad gita is about the duties of a householder a grihastha uh-huh. <laughs> there was a sage named koshik who was meditating in the forest he was intent on his meditation and he acquired powers as a result of his meditation and austerities there was a bird a crane on top of the tree and while he was seated there in his posture of meditation the bird shat on his head <laughs> so koshik glared angrily at the bird and because of the powers he had acquired through austerities Perfect. the bird was reduced to ashes fell Are down and died after this koshik went around begging for arms 
in the village. And this is a village that he occasionally went to beg arms in. He went to a house that he was familiar with. The lady of the household says, wait, I'll just get something for you. Let me wash the vessels. I'll get something for you. At that time, the lady's husband returns home. So she keeps Kaushik waiting, begins to tend to her husband, washes feet, feed him, etc., etc. And Kaushik, who is waiting there, is getting very, very angry. When the lady comes out, Kaushik looks angrily at her. The lady says, I had to do my duty first. That was my dharma. Um, my dharma is to tend to my husband when, she come, when he comes back. Why are you glaring at me like that? Do you think that I am a crane that you will glare at me and uh, I will be reduced to ashes? Oh, Wait a minute, how did you know this? The lady said, because I've been doing my dharma, I've also acquired power. So Kotik says, please make me, please make, please become my guru. The lady says, I am not competent to be a guru. If you want to, if you're looking for a guru, go to this hunter, hunter, mm -hmm. uh, in Mithila, he will be a guru. So Koshik goes there and meets this Vyad, the, the, the hunter, the, the butcher, who instructs me about dharma, about him, about dharma for householders. So there was a lot in the Mahabharata, including in the nature of the Gitas, which are for householders. You're absolutely right that the Bhagavad Gita has be, become the most important text. Um, for those who are in pursuit, particularly of Moksha Dharma, Bhagavad Gita has more than that, um, or Ashtavakra Gita for that matter. Yeah. There are these texts also. So, you know, I, I, I love that, uh, uh, Dr. Devore, because, I mean, it, not only is the story important, but the characters, the identity of the characters, right? A woman telling this Brahmana that she knows Dharma, that how she was able to perform her dharma with compassion better than the Brahmana Koshik was. And then she sends him to another non-Brahmin who is, you know, a hunter who can instruct him on dharma. It's this, this, this flipping, the inversion of what we currently think about in terms of caste politics or, or you know, the Varna system. It's this inversion. And the Mahabharata is utterly filled with them. With even the conversation of Sudlaba and Janaka is brilliant in that. Hey. Like, let me let me add on to that. It's not just the inversion. It's it's there's something for everyone. It's just not people looking for one thing in life. Like you said, you know, dharma, artha, kama, moksha. There's something for everyone, and for some reason, people have associated these spiritual texts with just moksha. This is just for people who want to run away and become sannyasis. It's it, and that's the that's the biggest problem I realized with with our the the PR the public relations of. Our Hinduism, people associate it with just someone going, Om Ramana, Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya. The whole time they're just doing this. No, Krishna is Loka Samgraha. It's be in the world. Go do it. Go out there. It's, yeah. To, anyway, to, that's my to add to that, to add to what you just said, um, let me quote a shloka. The reason I'm quoting a shloka is that it is a fairly well-known shloka. People quote it quite a bit. And if not in Sanskrit, at least in the English. And then sloka, this shloka from the Mahabharata is Kashtancha Kashtancha Sametang Mahadadhau Sametacha Vepetang Tatbat Bhuta Samagamaha. 
just as on the ocean two logs two pieces of wood come together stay together for a while having stayed together for a while drift apart relationships among beings are just like that meaning that nothing is permanent no relationship is permanent this quoted quite a bit yes it is from the mahabharata where in the mahabharata this is one of the multiple geetas in the mahabharata and this particular geeta is known as pingala geeta so this shloka is from pingala geeta and who is pingala who was pingala pingala was a courtesan she was a prostitute she so is talking about learning from a woman which is correct but here is a geeta which is about learning from a prostitute It's it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Um, yeah, knowledge so, comes from everywhere. Yeah. So uh, to follow up on this, you know, we you're you're in government. You spend a lot of time in government. How does like Shanti Parva Anushasan Parva? Much of the Mahabharata itself is about how to govern properly and and think about governance. Do you think within the Indian context, people in in political science or politics understand what this? text has to teach about politics um <laughs> all right uh if you ask people name a text on political economy name a text on governance most people most people will say arthashastra kautilya's arthashastra kautilya's arthashastra was a manuscript that had been lost mm mm-hmm. it had been lost until professor shama shastri rediscovered it in 1905 and translated it there is a national mission for manuscripts called namami 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 estimates that there are 40 million manuscripts in india estimates public collections private collections a manuscript being defined as something that is more than 75 years old out of these 95% have still not been translated they're not all in sanskrit some are in um, pali also but they've still not been translated until they are translated what about the knowledge in them i have a copy of a 13th century text which i don't think has been translated it is called chaurya shastram as the name implies it is a manual for thieves <laughs> if translated it would amount to it would it would become a book of about 350 printed can you send, can you send me the amazon link on that one <laughs> when it is published meaning this is the <laughs> it's not a published book yet chaurya okay. shastra <laughs> okay chaurya shastra Uh, now in the mahabharata there is a substantive section on rajadharma rajan at that time is the counterpart of the government today the king rajan there are many words for king 
Rajan is a word. Nripa is another word for a king. But every king is not a Rajan. According to the Itihas Purana, the first king who was a Rajan was Prithu. Because his father, Vena, was extremely wicked. Prithu set out the template for what a king should do. And he was the first Rajan because the root word for Rajan is someone who delights. So a king becomes Rajan only when he causes delight to the subjects. So if I look at all of these texts and I see what the king was supposed to do, what the Rajan was supposed to do, and I'm talking about domestic because there's plenty of stuff in Kautilya and outside in uh, when Bhishma is lying down on his bed of arrows in Shanti Parva and Anushashan Parva and other texts, also in the Dharma Shastra texts like Manusriti. There are plenty of things on what the government or the king should do vis-a-vis -vis external powers, other kingdoms. But so far as the domestic part of it is concerned, punish the wicked, protect the virtuous, have an efficient dispute resolution system, protect property rights. This is all that a king was supposed to do. A lot of the stuff was left to others. In terms of the template for dharma, there were things that a king was supposed to do, Raja Dharma. There were things that the community did. Skill formation was not done by the government. Mm. It was done by the strainees or the guilds. Unfair trade practices, restrictive business practices were not looked after by the government. Mm. They were looked after by strainees. Mm. Something like MRP, maximum retail price, was determined by the strainees. And there was the individual. The individual had to do five Mahayagyas every day, the Grihastha, mm -hmm. which also involved doing civic works. We use the word Ishta and Purti. What is Ishta and what is Purti? Ishta is a sacrifice. Purti is civic works. It is building a road. It is uh, building even a temple. Now, this was done because it was your dharma to do that. It was not because there was, there was the rod of corporate social responsibility which said you had to do that. In other words, the king or the government had a limited role and the rest of it was to be done by the community and citizens. That was the template for governance. Mm -hmm. In that day and age, the tax ratio, so to speak, was 1-6, 16%. Tax GDP ratio is around 15%, a little bit less than that. But look at the number of things that we expect the government to do today. Yeah. With, with virtually the same or lower taxes. <clears throat> and look at the things that citizens and communities did that then and have abdicated. So when you are, you did not ask the question like that, but when I look at it, mm -hmm. That template involves not just what the government should do, it also involves what others should be doing. In other words, 
There is a need for prioritization about what government should be doing and the primary responsibility of government anywhere in the world. The primary responsibility is to ensure security, internal and external, dispute resolution, protection of property rights. So yes, in terms of understanding of Raja Dharma, understanding of Dharma gleaned from these texts, it is this. So how do, I mean, India is, you know, for us, the seat of all these texts. It is the place where their birth, that they grew and lived. And I know there's a historical reason for, you know, all these changes and the, the governments, the way the government's structured. But how does one teach Dharma from these texts in the modern world? And how can it apply in this modern world? with different liberal, like Western liberal uh, paradigms uh, uh, there, other Marxist paradigms also there. How does one negotiate that? Well, I think the first step, which is how I would interpret at the risk of being somewhat egoistic, I would interpret my text as an, my translation, my work as an eliminate, as an attempt to do this exercise of dissemination. Mm. So the first step is to know that this is what used to happen. Mm -hmm. You said modern world. The British documented everything and they authored these wonderful, wonderful things called district gazetteers. Ambala district gazetteer from the year 1883. What's happening in Ambala in the year 1883? In the year 1883 in Ambala, a canal has to be built for purposes of irrigation. In 1883 rupees, this is going to cost, was going to cost about 45,000 rupees. I've rounded it off a little bit, roughly 45,000 rupees. Government of the day paid 20,000. Who paid the remainder? 25,000, the community did. So this modern world, this is not thousands of years ago, this is just 1883. Mm -hmm. What seems to have happened for various historical reasons, beginning with the British, there was too much of centralization. <clears throat> Traditional methods of dispute resolution got supplanted by the British court system. Similarly for village constables, etc., etc., I can go on and on. So for their own reasons, the British excessively centralized. Mm -hmm. And post 47 with the emphasis on planning, etc., mm. as citizens we became pampered. Mm. We abdicated our responsibility and we expect government to do everything. Mm. You mentioned these two extremes. These two extremes, it's a bit of a caricature because that idea sure. does not exist anywhere in the world. But right. the capitalist system is one where everything is left to the market. Mm -hmm. The socialist yeah. one is where everything is left to the state. Yeah. But we had a template that was in between where some things were done by 
the state. Mm. Some things were done by citizens, the market, but a whole lot of things were done by the community. Uh-huh. Now, that is a template that one might even say is an alternative template to the two existing polar extremes of socialism and capitalism. But it needs to be disseminated mm-hmm. because we are losing we are losing appreciation for the fact that this legacy exists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and it is telling that when these texts were written, or if we say they're written around the time uh, before the, the British, India's India's percentage of global GDP was like almost a third, right? They were, they were incredibly wealthy and doing well in those time periods before. Um, when they were when they kept those older kinds of mentalities, um, yeah. I, I it's so. What what do you what would you tell people that listen to this podcast in India that are interested in understanding dharma? What what would you say are the fundamentals of dharma for them to understand and so they can build off of? I would be, I would be very reluctant to use the word dharma. <laughs> Hmm. The reason I would be very reluctant to use the word dharma is that the word dharma can only be imperfectly translated into English because it has multiple meanings in multiple contexts. Yeah, yeah. There is moksha dharma. There is the daily dharma, the nitya dharma that I do, whether it is the panchamahayagas that a household is supposed to do. Yeah. There is the raja dharma. There is um, the Varnashram Dharma and there is the Dharma that I individually follow. And and one of the things, one of the lessons from these texts is that in that individual Dharma sense, morality is not absolute. Mm. Let me give an example to illustrate what I'm trying to say. You mentioned towards the beginning about Arjuna. Well, we all know about Bhishma. So he was on a vow of Brahmacharya. And to cut the long story short, the princess of Kashi, Amba, said, if you do not marry me, I will immolate myself in the fire. And Mm. Bhishma said, but I've got this vow of Brahmacharya. And Amba immolates herself, becomes Shikhandi. We know that story. What is sometimes not known is that Arjuna was on a temporary vow of Brahmacharya for one year. Mm-hmm. At which point, Ulupi, the Naga princess, fell in love with him and said that if you do not marry me, I will kill if, I will kill myself. You decide which dharma is important for you. Your dharma of directing Brahmacharya <laughs> or your dharma of saving the life of a woman. So two Kshatriyas, both in uh, situations of Brahmacharya, Bhishma stuck to Brahmacharya, Arjuna decided to marry Ulupi. Is that, ba- ba- so, is that Babru Vahana's mother? No, that's Iravan. 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 Oh, oh. Iravan. Who, who is his son? Who is his child from Ulupi? Uh, Iravan. 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 Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. 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 Okay. So, the lessons of our text is you do not have absolute norms of morality. No one will say, thou shalt not steal. There are no commandments like that. But what you need to accept is every decision I take, according to my perception of dharma, 
will lead to consequences. Mm -hmm. So karma is the flip side of dharma. The two are linked together. Now, so far as anyone who wants to understand dharma is is concerned, I would say this is a complex subject. <laughs> Repeatedly, our texts say the notion of dharma is very subtle. Sukshma. Yes. So, therefore, do not read simplified tellings of the text. If you are interested, read the unabridged versions so that all the nuances come across to you. Preferably read them in the Sanskrit. If you cannot read them in the Sanskrit, and you are going to read them in the English, obviously I would recommend mine, but there are others also. <laughs> Can I ask? I have, I have a. I think this is an interesting question. So, uh, Professor De Bruyne, uh, we've been focusing so much on you know the Itihasas and the Puranas and and the Vedas of our culture. Have you been inspired or found um, any resonant texts in other cultures of the world? Like, um, like, and, and and if so, can you tell us a little bit about that? And if and you see any parallels with our with our um, Sanatana Dharma tradition? No, that is a, that I should not really answer because I obviously because of partly because of the kind of school I went to, I am reasonably familiar with the Bible. Mm -hmm. I am reasonably familiar because of my interests with the Buddhist texts. But I am not an expert in these by any stretch of the imagination. So therefore, it would not really be fair for me even to hazard an answer to that question. Fair enough. No, I appreciate that. Uh, so I know we've taken up so much of your time. Krishna, do you have any last questions that, that, that you think that, that you want to ask? Um, I, I was... Is it this noise coming? You hear that? Yeah, yeah. No, no, this, these are the Republic Day rehearsals. Oh, oh I see, yes. I see. Okay. These I see. are the planes flying past. Okay. Oh, well, yeah, well, I, I guess, do you have any other interests aside from, you know, being an economic advisor and uh, translations? Do you have any other hobbies in life that keep you happy and going? <laughs> hobbies, hobbies. Um, Look, at one point, till a certain age in life, I used to play chess quite seriously. Ah. But not anymore. Uh, I, the other thing, I'm not very sure whether it should be, it should be called a hobby or not. There, there is this style of a five-line rhyme that was popularized by Edward Lear called a limerick. So five days a week for a newspaper known as Mint, I write a limerick every day. Oh, that's, wow. That's, can you share one with us right now? <laughs> right now. I have to dig up whatever I've written. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll look it up. Okay, we'll look it up then. No problem. So uh, just a last question, uh, uh, Professor. Um, is there any last, um, you know, thoughts that you would like to share to our readers or our listeners and viewers about the importance of these texts or about anything particular that you think that they should know? Uh, no, um, uh, let, me, let me put it like this. 
that I'm reasonably aware than most people. But every day as I translate, I learn something new. And there are several things that we automatically do. We don't always know why we do them. And the explanations are in these texts, Aha. particularly the Puranas. The Valmiki Ramayana is, uh, from this perspective, the Valmiki Ramayana is not that rich because it's a simple story from Rama's point of view. It has interesting aspects, but not from the perspective that I was talking about. The Mahabharata, most people are are aware, so they know the basic details. The Puranas have been a discovery for me every day. For example, I'm translating the Shiva Purana now. I said I'm reasonably aware. I did not know until I translated the Shiva Purana uh, that Rudrakshas have different faces, right? Mm. etc etc I did not know uh, that there is a specific mantra depending on the mukhi of the rudrakshas mm. Mm. some people who are more aware than me may know about this but they probably do not know that the rationale and the explanation for this comes from the Shiva Purana so like that, every day I'm learning something new and I would recommend the reading of the Puranas. Yeah, I mean, right now I'm doing Vishnu Purana. Um, so that is uh, very unique because it's Parashara's mm. versus Vyasa's. And I find it to be fascinating with its uh, uh, connection with the Vishnu and Lakshmi being inseparable in many ways. Mm. Um, have, have, you, have, you, have you done the Vishnu Purana yet, sir? Yes, yes, but it's waiting with the publisher. It will be published towards the end of this year. Hey, look, can, I say, can I say one more thing just to inspire you, uh, Dr. Dubrow? You're doing such good work that's affecting people all around the world. And um, I have a five-year-old daughter named Lalita. And sometimes she's very fussy to put to bed. And we can't put her to bed. We'll try to reason with her and everything. But if my wife, Maya, says, Lalita, can I tell you a story? Immediately she shuts up. She gets into her bed. And she'll she'll listen to the story. And so what you're doing is you're spreading stories. And so we're so thankful that, like you said, you know, the Puranas will tell you why you did what you did. What a beautiful idea. And um, you, will, you will have to give me three more years, I think, or two more years, because then I will do the Brahmanda Purana. Aha. You may not know that the Lalita Sahasranama comes from the Brahmanda Purana. <laughs> and I'm stressing the Lalita Sahasranama because it is uh, sung throughout the South. I, yes. want a, I want an autograph copy from you. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thank you so much, uh, yeah, Professor. Yeah, you know, yeah, thank yeah, you for yeah. your time. We appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, um, thank you. Thank you. Know, uh, for everything. Thank you. Yeah, we appreciate uh- it. Pushpa Sugand Sumalaya Samire Pavana Munijana Yamuna Tire Pavana Munijana Yamuna Tire Gayati Vanamali Gayati Thank you.
गायती वनमा